Let us begin with prayer. Glory be to thee, O God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, who in thine sovereign majesty has made us to be thy people, and has given us such great and glorious promises in Jesus Christ. We thank thee that we have an inheritance that is eternal, unchangeable, and all-glorious. Give us grace, therefore, so to walk day by day that we cast our every care upon Thee, knowing Thou carest for us and hast ordained all things in Thy sovereign wisdom to serve Thy glory and to bring us to our fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Give us joy, therefore, in our labors, in our calling that we may serve thee with all our heart, mind, and being, that we might manifest that confidence and joy which thou dost rejoice in. Bless us to this purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> our scripture today is first from Psalm 40, verses 1 through 8. And Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. Our subject is work, rest, and leisure. Some purists would say leisure, but uh, leisure has become enthroned in common usage. Work, rest, and leisure... Continuing our studies in the theology of work. First of all, from Psalm 40, a psalm of David, verses 1 through 8. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it, and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And again in Psalm 40, verses 28 through 31. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. 
there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. There is a distinction between rest and leisure which is very important. In the second volume of the Institutes of Biblical Law, I have a chapter on leisure and work, calling attention to the distinction, quoting from the very sociologists who have dealt with the subject and defined in their thinking the concept of leisure. Leisure is an act of autonomy from legal and moral obligations. It is deliberately and self-consciously time off from time and history. In leisure activity, men seek to run away from work as though it were a burden, not to rest, to be refreshed for work. The world of time and the world of responsibility are seen by those who belong to the culture of leisure as a burden. And therefore, the goal is escape. And the love of leisure is a part of a culture that emphasizes escapism, where men have no calling. Leisure has a growing appeal. It is seen as a means of evading moral duty and the accountability that work requires of man. As a result, the modern world is very much given to a lust for more and more leisure. Advertising appeals to the lust for leisure and vacation ads in particular escape to a tropical paradise. The idea, of course, is to go somewhere and find a humanistic Garden of Eden with no moral responsibility nor law. And added to that is the go-now-pay-later idea. We have substituted for rest, a biblical concept, the idea of leisure and a vacation. That word, by the way, should give us pause because vacation and vacate are related words. They involve an attempt to run away from the world and from its responsibilities and burdens. But the idea of a Sabbath and a Sabbath rest, whether it be the weekly rest, a longer Sabbath during the year, is very different. In such resting, we are confident that the government is not upon our shoulders. We do our work under God and unto God. And we know that our labor is never in vain in the Lord. 
We know moreover that even as we rest, God is at work, that He is accomplishing His purpose, that He makes all things work together for good to them that love Him, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So the worst things we experience, which we may not feel as good, are working together for good. We rest in that fact. I will both lay me down and sleep in peace, for thou, Lord, only makest me to rest in safety. Now that's Sabbath sleep. We are to keep the Sabbath week by week in our rest time away from work in our eating and sleeping. It means that we know what we do and everything we've done in our lives, including our mistakes and our sins. Because we are now the Lord's, He will make it add up to good, to an eternal good. And this gives us a tremendous confidence we trust then in God's providence. We can say with Paul that we rejoice in all things. And we find his words like a battle cry of victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. To rest in the Lord is not to attempt to step out of time or to step out of responsibility, but to strengthen our trust that our labor is never in vain in Him, that He makes all things work together for good. Thus, godly rest is an act of trust. And that's why you can rest. And that's why you can work. We read, first of all, from Psalm 40 by David, written according to the best Hebraic scholars, when he was a refugee for his life, running away from Saul with a price on his head. And he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. And although he has not yet been delivered and Saul is still out there, he says, because he went to him, to God in his despair, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. Now, when rock is used symbolically in Scripture, it means God. The miry clay where he was caught was himself, his humanism, his effort to find the way out on his own and to answer the thing for himself. Well, what answer is there? Somebody's out to kill you. You're running. What more can you do? Worrying isn't going to help. But now God has taught him to trust in him. So his feet are set upon the rock of ages. 
and he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto my God, unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. When people see the confidence that I have, it's going to make them afraid. And when David came out of the cave and from a distance showed Saul what he had taken from him while he was sleeping and how he could have killed him but had not, for a time at least it broke Saul up. And Saul recognized this man is the Lord's anointed. He moves in the fear, the love, and the power of God. And so David could say, it isn't the form of religion that God wants. It isn't the outward sacrifice, though those are commanded. It is that with all my being in this situation, the worst in my life thus far, I trust in him. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. David was resting when he was running for his life. Because faith without works is dead. And to wait on the Lord is to delight to do the will of God, to hear and to obey God's law. The Bible thus sees true rest, godly rest, as an act of faith. It is a trust in God's providential work. It is also work done in that faith and trust. We work with rest because we know God works. Now we've been talking about work, rest, and leisure and their relationship to one another. Let's go a little further. One of the great illusions of our time is that leisure is a source of productivity. This is a myth. People everywhere dream of what they could accomplish given time off, given leisure. And the world is full of frustrated people who are sure they could do great things given subsidized leisure. And I constantly hear that, well, I have an invention in mind. If I could only get a subsidy and have enough leisure time, I could produce this. These are very superior, very intelligent people. Or I could write, or I could paint, or I could sculpt, or I could do this and that. I could compose music. If only I had the leisure time. And they're always applying for subsidies, looking for a good angel to provide them with that subsidy and with that leisure. 
I regularly get letters from brilliant people who feel ready now to embark on the great venture if we can give them so many thousands a year, if we can subsidize them. But is leisure a source of productivity? There are foundations doing that kind of subsidy work, and they're producing nothing, nothing of any real significance because leisure is not the source of productivity. And all too many spend their entire year or the three-year grant accomplishing nothing. Nothing. Why? It is not leisure that is productive, but work. Now, we had an arts and media conference. Most of you were there. The young man, Martin Selbretti, whose composition we heard and we heard him speak, has had at the age of 26, what is it, 26 compositions, something like that? 70. 70 performed by symphonies or string ensembles and so on. He works with his father in their typesetting plant puts in a hard day's work there. He is a family man with family responsibilities. How can he compose so much? Why, because he is involved in the context of life, of work, with godly rest. This is what leads to productivity. It is not leisure which is productive, but work with rest. And the best inventions are all produced in the context of work and need. And men who are productive are productive no matter what the circumstances. They produce because it is something in their being, in their bones, which has to be done. I like Sanson's music, and I like his saying that he produced music the way a pear tree produces pears. Or we can say the way an, a hen lays eggs. It doesn't meditate on whether it's going to lay an egg or not. It lays them. And those who are productive are productive because their being requires it. Where subsidies and leisure operate, the results are at best mediocre and meager. And this is why the world of art today, because it is a subsidized world, is unrelated to reality. We have an art that is empty, music that is empty. It's dead. It has no relationship to the real world. Now, Otto Scott is working on a book which will follow his Wilson book on the relationship of Christianity and industry to technology. Industrial research and development produces inventions, not the academicians at the universities 
with their three or four hours a week, which is what full professors teach, three hours, sometimes two. A workload like that, you know, leaves them no time to produce. <laughs> so the <coughs> academic scientist is an unproductive man. But industrial research and development is productive because the man is on a deadline. This has to go into production. We need this and that to be developed in order to be able to accomplish this. What has happened in our world today is that in our thinking, because all of us yearn for that very often, oh, if only I had the leisure. If I had six months, <coughs> I'd do some remarkable things. We all have that. We've picked it up from our culture like we pick up cold germs and other things. <laughs> but in the arts and the media, subsidies and leisure have replaced work and the Sabbath principle. And the result is an elitist art. There are no hierarchs in the world of arts and the media because these men are not dedicated to sacred rule, which is what hierarch means. A hierarch is a man who is ruled by God and rules whatever his work in terms of God. But leisure means a break with work and with reality. It is a break, therefore, with productivity. And the result we have all around us, the sterility of the modern world in the arts and the media. A radical sterility. When you put good men and leisure together, you produce, in effect, mules who are sterile. And of course, the orientation of leisure is to dream. Leisure itself is a dream of modern man, a dream of escapism, of a break with the world and with its productivity and with its day-by-day -day routine and requirements. And what it does when men yearn for that, and think about it, when you've yearned for it, as I say, we all are guilty of this at some time, it produces a fretfulness which is non-productive and self-destructive. So if we work saying, oh, I could do so much if only I had a year off or six months off, what we are dreaming about will make us fretful. One of the most telling shifts I have seen in my lifetime now, I was born in 1916, has been the shift from a delight in life to boredom. When I was a boy, the word bore meant to drill something. <laughs> now, when somebody speaks about being bored, they don't say somebody's drilled them, put a hole in their head or someplace. They mean that they're weary of life. 
Now, the most exciting game around is life. How can you get bored with life? Or work. If you have a calling, you may feel you've got too much to do and you wish you had more time to do more, but to get bored with it. That's what life is about. You're saying you're bored with living. Boredom is a doctrine that has been revived because we have revived Greek thinking. First in the latter part of the last century with the elite, self-styled elite. Elitist because they believed in the Greek world of philosopher kings. And didn't believe in working, just in uh, managing everybody's life for them. And they got bored doing nothing. And the elite today are bored. And they have conveyed their ideas and their world and life view to everybody. So children are bored now. Nothing to do. I never heard anyone say that when I was young. Never did. And the number of games that... Uh, existed when I was a boy have all disappeared. Why? Well, because instead of reality, people are geared to leisure activities and to dreaming with the television helping them. And the result, too, has been not only a separation of thought from matter and ideas from work, but an abstraction from life and ivory tower education. Some few years ago, 10, 12 years ago, a scholar, very fine man, very gracious gentleman, uh, told me very earnestly and uh, with the best intentions in the world that I was making a serious mistake in my writing. I was writing for the general public, anyone who wanted to read. And I should write for scholars so that a dialogue could be entered into in which they would critique my work and I would critique their work and we'd be involved in endless dialogue back and forth without any relationship to reality. That's the elitist principle. That turns a man's perspective into unreality, into a world of leisure thinking. But the biblical doctrine of rest is something different. When we are told in Isaiah that God, who is the God of the creator of the ends of the earth, gives power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. We are told, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. The reference there is 
to those who are on military service or in the middle of a war. So here they are, battle-weary. They're ready to faint, ready to collapse with weariness. And what God tells us here, what through Isaiah, those who are on the firing line of life in the midst of work, if they wait upon the Lord, He shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. What a wild image. Ever seen a man fly like an eagle? Would take something supernatural to make me fly like an eagle. But what Isaiah is saying is this. If you are doing your work and you trust in the Lord and you wait on Him, He gives power to you in the place of responsibility so that from someone who's ready to collapse in the battle and to pass out, suddenly you're doing your work like an eagle is soaring above all problems. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. That's power. Power in the context of the battle. Power in the context of work. It is work and godly rest which are most productive and most renew our lives. The quest for leisure for leisure to produce leads to fretfulness, boredom, and mental depression which is born of emptiness. The products of leisure, let me say again, are notable for their sterility. God calls us to work and rest in Him, and the two go together. We rest like David could rest in the midst of running for his life, trying to evade Saul's men as they were searching him out. He rested by trusting in the Lord. So you can take a weekend off or take a week off or two weeks. But there's no rest if there's no trust in God. Only another kind of weariness. And as a result, a leisure-oriented society which has replaced work and meaning with play in time gets bored with play. It loses all interest in either play or life. You know, there's a familiar saying, if you want to get something done, assign it to a busy man. There's a lot of truth in that. Don't look at me, please. <laughs> I have my share of assignments. But uh, there's truth in that. It's the busy man who gets things done because he knows how to work 
And he knows how to rest. But elitism exalts Greek abstractionism from the world of work. It sees leisure as the seedbed of creativity, but it undermines society and ensures its own destruction. That's why our society all around us is self-destructing. It is losing the capacity to work and to rest. Sadly, this kind of faith, this Greek elitism and leisure worldism has infected all too many of us. We have a problem right now. Our world is falling apart. This is why I've been dealing with the theology of work. Because it is we who are Christians who have a calling. We who have the responsibility to take over and to rebuild, to reconstruct all things. And we can only do it in terms of God's way. Productivity is born out of the context of life, out of godly work and rest. And those whose being is in that context shall flourish. But those who have a hatred of work and a lust for leisure are taking the road to death. Let us pray. Thy word, O Lord, is truth, and thou hast called us to work and to rest in thee and has promised that our labor in thee can never be in vain. Give us grace, therefore, so to work with joy and thanksgiving, and so to trust in thee that day by day we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes, all right. I suppose not, not so much a confession, but a, but a, a question, but a, a confession of some of my old, old tendencies and sins in that area. For, for example, I, I have bought a sailboard that I'm looking for for to uh, with some interest to all the beautiful lakes you have in this, this area for, the, for the, this, this summer. And I've had to go through that, that in, in, in my mind. My, my uh, how, how, how am I to... Am, am I to, to view that some, some uh, like 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 the surf culture tends to center their whole lives around that kind of activity? We can do the same thing as another person, but it's what our relationship to God is that determines whether it is rest or leisure activity. You can go off in a sailboat on a cruise and come back no more ready to work because there is not the rest and the trust in God. So it's what we are that makes the difference because you remember David in his psalm says, God doesn't delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifice per se. 
It's the heart that trusts in Him that only gives meaning to those things. So we can be involved in activities which to another man spell escapism, but for us can be rest in the Lord and a strengthening for our work. Yeah, sorry. Rush, in terms of the Old Testament scriptures that you used this morning, would the New Testament scriptures, in terms of, of being complementary to the ones you cited, be the ones about the development and multiplication of the talents, first of all? Yes. And secondly, the scripture, to whom has much, much more will be given, and to whom has less, much will be taken. Exactly. Very, very well said. Because our Lord tells us there that... Uh, those who meet responsibilities, more shall be given to them because they are going to use them and find a greater trust and rest in doing their work under God. But those who don't are the ones who are fretful. <coughs> the man who didn't use his talent came up fretfully, fearfully. He'd hidden his talent in the ground. The other point is that for the, for the fallen man, the natural man, work is still the curse, yes. as in Genesis. But for the regenerate man, work is obedience to his calling for which he is created. Therefore, work becomes a joy from which he does not seek to escape. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, John. And the whole problem with the fallen man looking at work as, as drudgery is the fact that, generally speaking, the law structure upon which he works being false produces a frustration and a lack of productivity eventually it self-destructs and I think they I think many people see that that's why the importance of the law so much I think the law in itself uh, most people never stop to think about it you know if I put God's law to work what is it going to do it's going to make me feel better and all these kinds of things yes but it's also going to be productive. It's also going to be creative. It's also going to show a profit. And so far as what R.E. was saying, the increase of the talents only comes by putting God's law to work, consciously putting it to work. Yes. Obeying his laws of economics, his laws of government, his laws of, of study and what have you. Could you address for a second the, the concept of weight? Because most people today, I've seen so many Christian friends of mine who... Uh, you ask them why certain things haven't gotten done, and they come back invariably with the I'm waiting on the Lord routine. And I, a couple of times I've gotten a little frustrated with that, and I said, well, has it ever occurred to you that the Lord might be waiting on you? And, uh, uh, I, that whole concept of wait seems very uh, passive and leisure-like. In, in yes. Uh, quietism, which arose in the 17th century, perverted the Christian perspective on waiting on the Lord. The biblical perspective is to wait on the Lord while you are doing your duty in the Lord. So uh, it is not a quietist, but an activist perspective. The waiting is spiritual. It is not a retreat from activity. Yes, Howard. Uh, uh. No, one of the confusions is that there's two dialects in, 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 in American English. One, one that waits for the waitress to wait on, on them, and the other waits on a waiter to, the waitress to wait on them. And, and, uh, and, and the most, most educated people are, speak the first dialect, and most Christians speak the, come from a group that speaks the sec, second dialect. But, but, can we, but 
is, is it might, might it be correct to say that it is this is the mode of the waitress that we are in, not of the customer? Would that be yes. explaining it? Yes. Otto, you had something to say. Well, William Belisa wrote a book, Murder for Profit, on mass murders <coughs> of the 20s. And the single thread that ran through all these fellows was that they didn't know how to earn an honest living. <laughs> And by luck, in most cases, or accident, they discovered that killing somebody led them to money. So therefore, they went into murder as a business. And if you were to take a census of the average prison, you would find there pretty largely an absence of any kind of work skill. So the net result of this is that if we educate people without telling them how to work yes we've destroyed them from the beginning exactly and that's how we destroyed many people in africa and elsewhere the ones we educated we abstracted from work yes you had the only comment i had is that this polarization between waiting on the lord and working is a result of the conflict of the of greek thought entering into the christian realm and not recognizing the clear uh, spiritual and animal nature of man where we wait on the Lord spiritually and work as he's given us uh, yes. to our calling in the physical realm. Yes. Mark? Yes? Um, that's one thing I've noticed about Christian schools. They're pretty much geared uh, to educating in the liberal arts in preparation for college. But um, that I know of, there aren't many Christian school movements that uh, gear, say, the high school or thereafter towards trades. Um, yes, uh, however, what we're seeing little by little is uh, departure from the older standards. The Christian school was originally a public school with Bible added. Little by little, we're getting a different emphasis and of course we need to develop this further in the direction you indicated. John? Well in terms of what Otto was saying about work uh, they hadn't been taught how to work. That was the if I understand you know one of the things that Dorothy Sayers is talking about in her essay on, on, on education in the Christian school in the medieval era was that what they in effect did in the lower grades was they taught kids how to work in terms of pursuing knowledge. They taught them the tools of learning which in effect taught them how to work and then later on the subject just became the grist for the mill and, and whereas today's curriculum is exactly the opposite of that you start out with subjects and it's only until you get to high school that you actually learn how to study yes any other comments or questions yes Chuck taking it down to the personal level of the young man and his education it seems that uh, the first thing that needs to be done uh, in his uh, case is to for him to be able to determine what his talent is because obviously he can't work productively or at least not very productively unless he has a concept of what his calling and what his talent is uh, what are schools doing to address that uh, specifically the Christian schools or how's the curriculum developed to to take care of that particular problem Yes, I don't think much is being done. A great deal needs to be done there, of course. But today, uh, 
career training is uh, not an aspect of education to any healthy degree. This leads to a crisis because after uh, reaching 18 or 21 or 22, the young man suddenly is confronted with the fact that he has to work and is not prepared for a working world. So what he tends to do is to take the easiest way out. Uh, something that will give him enough money so he can eat and sleep and enjoy himself. And so you have low caliber performance progressively. The further we get away from a, a Christian work ethic, the lower the productivity of the average person. Well, our time is up. Let us bow our heads down in prayer. Lord, it has been good for us to be here. Thy word is a healing, empowering force in our lives. And we rejoice that thou hast given us thy word that we may walk with light, with joy, with peace, and with thanksgiving. Make us ever joyful in thee and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.